I grew up with a young girl who I still know to this day, Cynthia Rose. That's her real name. And I would tell Prince about this girl that I went to school with, this extraordinarily kooky, lovable, beyond sparkly creature of a girl. This was like from second grade up to sixth grade. We'd be in a bus ride together. And she'd be saying, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. And I'd say, what are you saying? And she says, Papa, my favorite number is 20. She would say, you know what I had for breakfast? And I'd say, what'd you have for breakfast? She said, I have starfish and pee-pee. Every day I had starfish and pee-pee for breakfast. But I would tell Prince about her. He was so attracted to that story. And we would laugh and laugh and laugh. And then one day... I was sitting at the kitchen table, and he said, can you tell me the story of Cynthia Rose again? Let's just write it down. So I spent the better part of an hour, and he was like, starfish and pee-pee. Do you mind if I change to coffee? No way I can sing pee-pee. And it's all the kids in my class, the teacher, Miss Kathleen, my real teacher. Ten hours later, he comes up. He says, you want to come hear it? And I'm, yeah. Walk down there. He's standing at the, the board. He presses play. He says, here it is. Wow, it's beautiful. 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 Who was Prince? That is what I wish reporters were asking. And everything he touched was brilliant. He was the best pimp I've ever seen. He could turn a phrase better than most poets I've ever read. It's the art side of Prince. That's the rebel, the punk in Prince. The art school kid who wants to rebel against that and say lyrics that might raise an eyebrow. Welcome to Chapter 4 of Who Was Prince. Chapter 4, you are in my blood like holy wine, because this is about Prince's influences and the music that shaped him, the people who are in his blood. This is the only chapter named after a lyric from someone else. It's from Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. But Prince loved Joni immensely. He covered A Case of You in his later years, and the music that shaped him is in his blood like holy wine, and also in his blood is the man who turned water into wine. I'm your host, Touré, and after his 1982 album, 1999, Prince was touring the country, traveling behind the tour of the great country pop singer Bob Seger, who made the classic old-time rock and roll, which Tom Cruise famously danced to in his underwear in Risky Business. Seger was then a massive star, far bigger than Prince, and Prince couldn't understand why. Prince asked one of his bandmates why Seeger was more popular than him, and he was told that Seeger plays straight-ahead mainstream white rock and roll. Seeger plays arena rock. If Prince wanted to be as big as Seeger, he needed songs a whole arena could sing along with. Artists are comprised of image and artifice, but the thing they're actually selling is the songs they make and tickets to the shows they put on. And merch, yeah, but at the center of it all are the songs. Those are what make them, what define them. A great artist makes songs that appeal to a lot of people. They may or may not sing well. They may or may not rap well. But if they can create songs that resonate with a million plus people, they can have the keys to the world. Prince had made some hot hit records, soul and funk records that had made him a big star to black audiences. But he had not crossed over to mainstream success and he'd wanted that since the beginning of his career. And now, watching Seeger's example, he understood that he had to write a song that would help him cross over. After that, 
he wrote Purple Rain, which is a mainstreamy ballad anchored in rock and roll, not funk, with a big arena rock chorus that the whole crowd could sing along with. A song that would make people want to pull out their lighters and sway to the beat and have an epic communal experience while they're wrapped up in the song. It was Purple Rain, an operatic rock ballad that captivated America and became a monster hit that helped him cross over to the mainstream and become the superstar he had always wanted to be. Prince took influence from all sorts of places. He could turn anything into a song. Jerome said, This is what he's built himself for. He's read, he's played, he's studied. He could take one of those songs that you won't give any credit to your lyric <laughs> and turn that shit into a hit. Here's an example. Rio de Janeiro with his dad. Someone gave him a, a note and it was talking about how much she admired him. English, written in broken English. And the lyric in the song is exactly what the letter said. I wonder you. You're on my mind for all times. Though you are far. He took the lyrics for I Wonder You from Parade, a short, beautiful, weird little song from a note written by a fan in broken English. It's it's crazy. Somebody sent that to him and that became the lyric? Amazing. But this genius was formed by a cornucopia of influences. In the music, in the imagery, in the artistry of Prince, we can easily see the influence of James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Sly Stone, Carlos Santana, Rick James, even the Reverend Al Green. But perhaps the most overwhelming influence may be Little Richard. When you put video of them performing side by side, they look like brothers. Little Richard's flamboyance, his exuberance, his androgyny, his flair, his fire, his faces, his humor, his joy, all of that is reflected in Prince. One could easily say Richard is both Prince's artistic father because the influence is so direct and his artistic grandfather because he's a direct influence on so many others who influence Prince from James Brown to Jimi Hendrix to Mick Jagger to David Bowie. Little Richard is the alpha and the omega, the architect of modern rock and roll. And it makes sense that Prince took a lot from him. Prince is a genius who was formed by an array of influencers. Morris Hayes said, Little Richard had this one outtake, like this album of like his collection of just him in the studio. And we would listen to all of the outtakes, like like what's happening in between. Like when, uh, you know, back then they wouldn't let you produce yourself. And so Little Richard knew how to write his songs, you know how to do, but the label would have some guy in there and he'd be like, "Uh, Richard, uh, could you try that again without all the yelling? And 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 then you'd hear Little Richard go, like in the mic, like you'd hear the the outtake. And then as soon as the song starts off, he's yelling harder than he was. And and Prince would like lay on the couch laughing, like just dying, because he said that's what I love Little Richard because he just didn't want that guy telling him he had to do what he had to do because he had this label deal but he was not trying to let this guy tell him how to sing when he's like you can't sing a lick and you're sitting there trying to tell me how to do it and not to be like all this yelling he's like that's the soul you're trying to stifle my soul right now and and so when he would come he just kind of just let the air out 
and then just come back in wailing, man, just come in wailing harder than he was. And Prince just loved that. He spent a lot of time watching old footage of all these acts, studying the greats like a football coach watching game film of other teams, looking for the details that set them apart. Morse Hayes spent a lot of time watching tape with Prince. At this level, man, it's like nobody had to tell you you need to practice. You just did your homework because you didn't want to get whooped. And Prince never, ever was trying to get whooped by nobody. So we would just study the greats. And so a lot of the tapes we look at would be like any like James Brown footage. We like Sly Stone. There was a movie called Soul to Soul. There's like this festival that Mavis Staples and Ike Turner and all of them are on. We watch a lot of Ike and Tina Turner, you know. And we listen to like Ray Charles, the same kind of thing, just outtakes. But we really loved the footage because you could see the interaction. I was with Maceo for a few years. He's talking about Maceo Parker, the legendary soul saxophonist who came up under James Brown. It's like me and Maceo would kind of trade stories, and it was remarkable because there was a lot of similarities uh, between James and, and, and Prince. You know, Prince was a big student of James, and I think there was you know, a lot of the way that James ran his band. You know, Prince, I think, was a bit more compassionate about it, but uh, there was a lot of similarities in style in terms of, you know, if you messed up, you could get docked and, and that sort of thing. And if you messed up, we start over in your name. So if I messed up, we were like, we're going to start it over. We're going to start from the top of the song. We've ran it 20 times. But this is for Morris, since he messed up. And now everybody has to suffer along for Morris. And so, you know, he'd make you pay for it, man. So that everybody be looking at you sideways because, come on, man, you know, get it together, you know. And so... Um, that was the thing. It's just we, we, we look at that footage and try to e extract from it the, the key points that made those artists great. And so we would use all of that to just kind of like uh, study and just get energized. And then we'd go down to the studio or we'd go into rehearsal and then just kind of like deploy all of the stuff we had just learned watching these movies. And we'd spend a lot of time doing that some days. And then on days we were on the tour bus, we'd watch stuff like that. Of course, Prince also spent a lot of time watching tape of himself performing. What we did all the time, we'd play the show. And I mean, dude, our day was crazy. Like, we come in at 3 o'clock, we do sound check up until doors, we play the show for four hours, we go play the after show, and then we watch the tape until the sun comes up. That's what we did every day. And so it was bananas. Trombonist Greg Boyer sat through a lot of those video sessions. He would do long sound checks, long rehearsals, long concerts. Then you'd watch video of the concert after you were done. So you could see what you look like from the audience's eye instead of what you look like on stage. And I'm thinking to myself, didn't I just do this concert? Why do I need to see it? But after a couple times of watching it, I got it. I got why he would have everybody. And, you know, he'd have everybody up in his suite. He's got strawberries and chocolate and veggies and dip. And he's got this big screen and everybody's watching it. And understandably, people are really tired because they just had a long day. But every once in a while, you can see that spark in someone's eye. Wow. That's what that looks like from up here. Or, wow, if I had turned around with a little bit more conviction, you could see the detail of the performance. So, inconvenient as it was, I could see why he did that. And then you would go get some sleep and maybe do an after party <laughs> following. 
During the video sessions, Prince would point out little things they could have done better. He wanted us to always get better. The whole point of watching the tapes is like we would see our flaws, see how you look like Morris. He'd be like, look at how you look here. And I learned early on in my career that in show business, you want to look like it's a lot easier than it is. And I would smile all the time. And he would use that to like beat up on Blackwell. He's talking about the late John Blackwell, who was a drummer for Prince for a decade. John was an intense player, and uh, and he looked intense, but but Prince would always get after him because he was like, John, it looks like you're under duress. Look at Morris. He's over there smiling. He's having a good time. Look at him. He's, he's enjoying his work. He said, you look like you're, like, very intense. And so a lot of the players from back in the day, like James, if you look at the tape, they're all smiling. They're all having a good time because it's showbiz. They're like, dude, we're glad to be here, and we're all just loving it, you know. And that was one of the lessons that he wanted us to acquire. We are entertainers. We want to, like, present uh, something that people are like, yeah, they're having a good time, so we're having a good time. He loved groups like Graham Central Station and the Bar K's. He also loved Joni Mitchell. He once talked about setting up a recording room just for her at Paisley that she could access any time, day or night. And he loved Nikki Giovanni and her poems. She's another genius. Engineer Chuck Zwicky said Prince was deeply influenced by guitarists in the James Brown universe. Guys like Jimmy Nolan, Catfish Collins, Bobby Roach. Guys who had a funk chord approach to the guitar. He also loved to play the bass in a way that was reminiscent of Larry Graham from Sly and the Family Stone and Graham Central Station. He would sit at the keyboards and think about Gary Newman. When he would do background vocals, he would do each one with its own totally different personality, which would convey the sense of a group singing. But if you break out each vocal, each one has its own unique personality. These days, if a lead singer sings the background parts, they'll just sort of double it or triple it. So everybody's inflecting and speaking in the exact same way. But with Prince, he would sing each part in its own different way, as if there were three or four different people behind him. And of course, he loved rock. He liked the Stones. He liked the Clash. We used to listen to that a lot. He liked Fleetwood Mac. He had a lot of different influences. One of Prince's girlfriends told me, he loved Mozart and thinks he might have been Mozart in a past life. Amadeus was one of his favorite movies. He loved Miles Davis and John Coltrane. They're not Coltrane's more avant-garde stuff. Prince, I'm told, felt it was important for music to tell a story that people could understand. And he felt avant-garde music just didn't tell a story. He also loved Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk. He had a very open mind about a lot of music. But not hip-hop. He was annoyed by it and disdainful of it. He saw it as a genre full of people who couldn't sing and couldn't play instruments, and to his ear, had no real musical talent. People said he was offended that after years of building his musical ability to a finely honed zenith, suddenly in the 90s, there was a slew of artists outselling him despite having no talent, according to him. Prince's manager, Alan Leeds. I picked up a copy of Billboard that was sitting on the console in the studio and was just paging through it. And he said, give me that. And he turned to the Hot 100. And at the top of the charts were Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer and God knows what else. But he points to those two and he looks at me and he says, do you know what it's like to spend your entire lifetime learning a craft, never stopping trying to improve yourself? 
and look at Billboard magazine and see somebody who can either sing or play a note, have a number one record, and you're struggling to get your records on radio? He had a very difficult time understanding hip-hop as a legitimate art form because he basically saw it as a, as a road that someone with no singing or musical ability could take to become successful. And he resented that. He thought it was cheap. It was like, no, you didn't earn this. You have a number one record and you can't sing or play. And I'm, I can do both and really well. And you're going to sell more records than me? No, that's not right. So there was a lot of anger and resentment geared towards hip-hop because he saw it as this, as this cheap shot. And he didn't know how to compete with it. He had no idea how to compete with that. So it took him a long time before he would agree that a hip-hop artist could really be valid. Because as far as he was concerned, it was just a bunch of brothers running around talking shit and getting paid for it when they didn't deserve to. The Purple Rain movie shows Prince struggling with the idea of taking his bandmates' ideas about music seriously. Wendy and Lisa repeatedly ask him to listen to their tape, and he repeatedly mocks it until he finally pops it in and realizes it's good and starts to take them seriously as collaborators. In reality... Prince let Wendy and Lisa be a profound influence on him. You could tell from the way Purple Rain sounds, which is totally different than the music he'd made before. With Purple Rain, he'd moved on from soul and funk to some grand operatic guitar god rock. Purple Rain's engineer, Susan Rogers. Wendy brought a deeper rhythm to his music, and she brought, just like Lisa did, uh, other chords, more sophisticated chords that um, she would have known from all the musical training that, that she'd had. So she helped Prince go in that direction that he'd always admired and loved, that Joni Mitchell um, direction. And, uh, and to couple that with also with that funk bass that she had was pretty damn strong. The chords that she's fond of are, are very beautiful, subtle, sensitive, sophisticated chords. Lisa is the same way. So Prince was able to expand his music in a, um, I, I'm tempted to say feminine, but that would be the wrong thing to say. Um, it, in, a, in, a, in a, let's say, a more harmonically rich direction. Wendy was the same way, but of course she came from something other than the R&B world. So she's the one who opened him up to Joni Mitchell and opened him up to certain accord structures and, and a sense of harmony that maybe he wouldn't have gotten from musicians who grew up just playing R&B or funk as opposed to the pop stuff. Wendy joining the band was a little controversial because the rest of the band felt that, like, okay, who's this kid? She's just a kid. She has no experience, and how's she going to work, and how's this going to fit in, and so on and so on. But, of course, it did, and Prince had seen something in her. As his sound was becoming more pop, he realized, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. But um, it took a little bit of navigating because as he embraced a pop rock sound, he had to kind of let go of a little bit of funk. He wasn't going to be James Brown after all. He was going to be closer to a modernized Sly Stone, and then Sly was pop. Susanna said the greatness and impact of Wendy was also due to keyboardist Lisa Coleman. The two of them together brought an emotional component to his writing. And it was Wendy and Susanna's brother Jonathan Melvoin, who along with Lisa's brother David Coleman 
who wrote a song that inspired Prince to create his trippy, hippie, psychedelic album Around the World in a Day. Susan Rogers. They um, came out to visit their sisters out in Minnesota. They brought this song. Prince loved it. And we cut the song at rehearsal with the whole band on stage, including David and Jonathan. The message in this record was, there is an us. We have created a world. The Purple Rain is about is one man's masterpiece, and it's about one man's most artistic thoughts. Although other musicians played on it, it's one man's masterwork. But on Around the World in a Day, after you've conquered yourself, what do you want to do? You want to conquer the world. And you want to be able to say, the world that I'm creating folks includes all of us and we're all different colors and we're all different ages and look at the cover and you can see that we have different abilities and disabilities we come from different backgrounds we um we might take drugs we might not we might be bold we might be shy there this is an us and that's why the rainbow color palette and that's why around the world in a day influencer it's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Around the World in a Day comes after Purple Rain, an album that turned Prince into a megastar. But where Purple Rain is full of ego and bombast and sex and power and rock and roll, Around the World in a Day is sweeter and gentler and utopian and zen. It recalls the music of the Beatles after they returned from India. I always thought that Around the World in a Day was Prince's way of somehow responding to the way his life changed with Purple Rain, but... It was made before the movie came out. It was completed before they knew that he had ascended to rock god status. It gives us one last glimpse of his pre-megafame self. Susan Rogers. I think it was inspired by the records that Susanna was playing for Prince, which included Led Zeppelin and included the Beatles, because Prince didn't listen to that growing up. I think those things inspired him. But most of Around the World in a Day was completed before we ever went on the Purple Rain tour. It is my favorite of the records we did together because it was the last time he was innocent. This was Prince before Prince. So while he's making Around the World in a Day, for the most part, we were at home in the warehouse. This is before Paisley Park is built. So we're at home in Minnesota getting ready for this movie to come out, getting ready for the Purple Rain album to be released, preparing and rehearsing for a big tour. This could have gone either way. A semi-autobiographical movie about your life, this could kill your career because you're 25 years old. Maybe the critics won't like it. Maybe your R&B soul audience won't like this big rock ballad that you've just did, that done that is reminiscent of Journey or Bob Seger. Maybe they won't like it. Maybe this won't work. But Prince was happier and more optimistic than, than I ever saw him. After that, after the Purple Rain, everything changed. But while we were making Around the World in a Day, he was happy, and he was still innocent. He was still a kid. So songs like Raspberry Beret and Pop Life and Around the World in a Day itself have an exuberance about them that's easily felt. The latter has that gratitude that I spoke of. Uh, Tambourine has an unabashed 
admission of self-satisfaction, of masturbation. That's what that song is all about. And Condition of the Heart is one of my favorites because it's one of his most honest lyrics. Prince rarely admitted that he was in pain. Rarely, rarely, rarely. When we were on tour, if if he was sick, he would just take Dayquil, that over-the-counter cough medicine, and he'd go on stage. He didn't want to admit that he was hurting. But on Condition of the Heart, he's saying, a sometimes lonely musician... He was hurt. He he was hurt. And 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 what a what a vulnerable moment for him. Those moments were rare. Uh, so that's a, that's perhaps my favorite album. Two years later, when Prince and Susanna were breaking up, his intense sadness bled all into the album he was making. He was clearly in pain. He was clearly in pain, and not wanting to admit that. Um, you'd see it in his mannerisms, in his face, in how talkative he was. It, this wasn't the same guy as the one we'd worked with on a, Around the World in a Day or Purple Rain. Um, he was darker and more serious and hurting. His movements were slower. He was he was slower. It's funny because you don't see the super sad songs that you might write. I think Parade has more of the sad songs and the sad feel than Sign of the Times. I think Sign of the Times is a little more, the the title song aside, upbeat. It is. uh, Some of those upbeat songs in This Is Telling had to be pulled out of the vault in order to complement the record. I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, high energy song, was pulled out of the vault. Um, it's going to be a beautiful night was recorded with the revolution that was an older song it was recorded with the revolution on tour when we were in Paris Um, his mood was closer to the cross and sign of the times and ballads he um the, the the reason you got the look was such was such a huge hit I think is because the amount of effort focused concentration and effort it took to to make that upbeat pop song He brought in Sheena Easton to help add some of that energy to it. Now, Adore was, I'm I'm quite certain, because he was engaged to Susanna at that time, so, uh, of course, no one knows the contents of a person's head, but I think I'm probably safe in saying that it was for her and about her. He was exclusive with her at that time, and he did say, he said in the control room, he wanted to win his R&B soul, his core audience, back. He wanted to be back on R&B radio, and that was a a deliberate attempt to do one of those old-fashioned R&B soul ballads. He felt it. He meant it. Uh, if I was your girlfriend, though, that that's the art side of Prince. That's the rebel, the punk in Prince, the art school kid who wants to rebel against that and say lyrics that might raise an eyebrow in more conservative communities. And what are you talking about, if I was your girlfriend? Let me pick out your clothes? I mean, really? For you, naked, I would dance a ballet? Come on. So he, he, um, he was okay with that dichotomy. After Sign of the Times... Prince's desire to speak to black audiences only grew stronger. After the Sign of the Times record um, didn't receive the uh, attention in the press that Prince thought it deserved, and it did not necessarily win back his core R&B audience, his soul audience, um, there was some criticism that he had lost his funk, that he wasn't funky anymore, that he wasn't black enough. That really stung, that hurt him badly, and he just had this knee-jerk reaction that says... 
not black, me not black, listen to what I'm doing and you tell me whether or not I'm black enough. So he put together something he called the Black Album and it's this funk stuff that he could do like in his sleep. And he was just about to release it when he realized, what am I doing? I've never done a reactive album. I've done proactive albums. I never make albums as a response to my critics. Have I lost it? What's wrong with me? It's interesting to see him mid-career fighting to win back black audiences because earlier in his career, he consciously fought to make sure he was going to cross over. From early in his professional career, he was calculating about not wanting to be pigeonholed as just an R&B artist. He insisted on doing American Bandstand as well as Soul Train. He had management book him to perform in white clubs as well as black ones. It was about trying to become as big as he could. At that point, there was a big difference between the amount of resources that a label would give a black artist versus a big white artist. Resources for marketing and promotion and touring. The industry then had a system of separate but unequal treatment. This part of the story truly goes back to 1971, when CBS Records commissioned the Harvard Business School to study the industry and figure out how they might make more money. The Harvard Report, as it came to be known, suggested that black music should be promoted and marketed by its own separate department that pushed black artists to black audiences. Soon CBS had their own department for black music and the other labels followed suit. This sort of segregation soon became the industry standard. The intent was not inherently racist, but of course the urban music department, as it was inevitably called in most labels, were given smaller budgets than the pop music department. They had less money to spend to promote black artists. But Prince wanted to be a superstar, and to do that he had to be promoted by the pop music staff and have access to the pop music budget. Friends say he was obsessed with not going on the virtual Chitlin circuit. He first signaled that he was different from the typical black act by following the lead of Sly Stone and having a mixed race band. Sly and the Family Stone was a band that was black and white, male and female, symbolizing the global family and unity and helping expand their potential reach. Friends say Prince was consciously thinking about Sly and the look of his band when he was auditioning players, and he wanted the revolution to be black and white and male and female to help get him out of the music industry ghetto. Having white members helped white fans see that this was not just for black audiences, and having women in the band was really powerful and affirming for his female fans. Most of the women in pop music are singers, not players, and having women players in his band sent a strong message to his female fans. Alan Leeds talked about the many, many times after shows that girls came up to Wendy and Lisa crying their eyes out and saying that seeing them on stage had given them hope. But Prince's biggest influence by far is Jesus Christ. He talks about the end of days in so many songs. He talks about angels watching him make love and adore and crying at the beauty of the act such that tears of joy are pouring down on him and his lover. He talks about God and evil all over Love Sexy. I mean, for the love of God, he stops in the middle of controversy to say the Lord's Prayer. On his album Purple Rain, he does I Would Die For You and Who Died For You? Jesus. And then he does Purple Rain, which is a song about giving redemption and baptism. The rain is baptismal. Water is quite often a symbol of baptism. And it's Purple Rain because it's from Prince. He's positing himself here, one song after I Would Die For You, as a Jesus figure, able to redeem and baptize. And he says, you say you want a leader. 
he's offering himself. Is this prince truly thinking he's the new messiah? Or is it that rock star messianic complex that we've seen in so many? Lots of rock stars have told us to worship them like Jesus. But Prince strikes me as different. As I said at the end of my book on Prince, it's almost like in his career, he used sex as a way to get you interested in him. And once he had your attention, he was like, hey, let me tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his music, he often talked about sexuality and spirituality and reconciling the two, a tension between Saturday night and Sunday morning that has been a central theme in black music for decades. The music of Marvin Gaye, of Aretha Franklin, of the Reverend Al Green, of R. Kelly, of many more often asked the question, can I be sexual and lustful and still be right with God? Religion seems to want to wall us off from lust and to punish it, but Prince seemed to believe that those sexual urges came from God, so they must be all right. But more than just talking about spirituality and its place in our lives, friends say Prince really did believe that he was celestially special. Prince really did believe that he was celestially special that he had an in with God, that the only way he could explain the extraordinary musical gift he had, the only way he could explain the way so many great ideas flowed through him at all hours of the day and night was that it was a blessing from God. Alan Leeds worked for James Brown and spent a lot of time around Miles Davis, but Prince, he said, Prince was a vessel for music beyond even them. He could not sleep because music was coming out of him all the time. You couldn't say, Prince, there's a studio in the next town. Can you wait? No, 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 no. He's got so much bursting out of him that he's got to record more now, always, right now, every day. Gotta get something out. And his friends say the gigantic amount of music pouring through him and the massive size of his gift, being able to sing and write and play and so much else, many said that led him to think that God had anointed him. It led him to feel especially blessed. I mean, Prince grew up around many great, talented musicians who were extremely driven people, from Morris Day to Des Dickerson to Jesse Johnson to Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Alexander O'Neill. The list goes on. He grew up in a family that had no money, no fame, and was broken. He grew up without a family, really. How do you leap over everyone you know and go into an astounding level of global talent and success and fame and wealth? And how do you make sense of that? What do you attribute that to? It can't just be hard work and dedication. Many said Prince looked at all of that and said, this has to be the hand of God himself. One friend told me that once in a car with Prince after a gig, he said to someone, do you ever think that I was Jesus Christ? Because maybe I just am. Maybe I am the second coming. Des Dickerson told me Prince often said, we were sent here to help people see. Apparently that was a recurring theme in the inner conversation of the band and a sense that he was enlightened which meant the band was meant to be messengers who brought this enlightenment to people who needed it. It was a musical mission. Several people said Prince may have gotten the idea that he was a chosen one from the revolution's first keyboardist, Gail Chapman, who told him he was blessed by God. Other members of the band said that fueled Prince's ego beyond belief. I had to track Gail down. 
She was living on a ranch in Montana that was pretty much off the grid, but not so far as to not, you know, like have Facebook. But anyway, I Facebooked her and then I called her and she said, yes, she told him he was blessed by God. But she didn't mean it as a big deal. When he talked to her, she said that she did tell him that he was blessed by God. But she thought everyone was blessed by God. So Prince took a loving comment from a Christian bandmate and let it fuel this raging fire inside him that told him that he was celestially special. He was blessed. And soon enough, the whole band could see it. One of the band members told me about an outdoor concert in Japan where in the hours before showtime it was threatening to rain and everyone was worried about playing a gig in the heavy rain and one of the guys in the crew laughed and said, Oh no, it's not going to rain. Prince will talk to his buddy upstairs and make sure it doesn't rain. There was always this feeling that in his own particular way, he had the inside track. Maybe they meant that comment and this whole story to be sarcastic, to be having a laugh at Prince behind his back. Maybe. But even in that cynical of a reading, the crew member who said Prince will call his buddy upstairs is saying out loud that Prince has aligned to God, or at least Prince believes he has aligned to God, and everyone in earshot knew exactly what he was talking about. By the way, in case you're wondering, it drizzled. Not enough to disrupt the show. And presumably... Not too much to disrupt the sense that Prince was somehow celestially special. I think he felt that he had been given a gift uh, from, from a divine source and that he was going to use that gift wisely and that he was going to be grateful for it. He was going to express sex and desire, uh, but I, I, I think he felt like... Um, that, that God maybe kind of approved of that in some way. Susan Rogers was one of Prince's most loyal and loving employees, someone whose life has been shaped by having worked for him. She's someone who's deeply grateful for having worked for him. Most people who worked for him are super grateful. Sometimes he elevated people to positions they would have never gotten without him, positions they did not know that they could hold without him seeing it first. But sometimes... He could be a very difficult boss. What was it like to work for Prince? That's the next chapter of Who Was Prince. Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall. Our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.